The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together as we now look at God's Word, and a special thanks to our children in helping us uh, lead worship this morning, engage in praising God, and it's a joy for us to partner together in discipling this next generation to love and know Jesus. Would you join me as we now pray and ask the Lord for help? Father, we want nothing more than for your glory to shine forth this morning. We want to see more of your son, Jesus, so that we would be changed to become more like him. So open our eyes, open our hearts, give us ears to hear and show us your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, when we first moved here to Minnesota, we invited this couple over and they said, can we bring anything? Because that's what nice Minnesotans do. They always ask, can we bring anything when they get invited over? And so we said, sure. My wife said, bring a salad. And so we, we soon discovered that the word salad can have a few different meanings here in Minnesota. So they come over and uh, in the bowl, there are no green vegetables. There are no bell peppers, no artichoke hearts, no croutons, nothing that resembled a salad. In California, where we were from, a salad only referred to kind of a side dish that had green vegetables in it. So we were quickly initiated into what is called a Midwest Jello salad. And it consists, I think, of Jello and Cool Whip mixed together. I don't know if there are any other ingredients, and I'm sure some of you like it. <laughs> this is not what we expected, and it's okay if you like it, and if you bring it to our home, we will eat it, uh, but it was all fluff and no substance. It's not what we think of, at least my family, when we hear the word salad. It was just fluff and no substance. Similarly, when we come to Advent, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas, there's a lot of people who just want the fluff without the substance. They want Christmas, but they don't want Christ. They want the joy and the decorations and the presents and all the fun things about Christmas, a few days off from work, but we don't want Jesus. We don't want all that religious stuff. Maybe we'll take the sanitized versions of the religious stuff. You know, we'll take a nativity and that there were animals at the manger and maybe you'll go and see a real life nativity scene with real animals and real camels and real goats and that feels fun and enjoyable, but we don't want all the hard things that Jesus said. We don't want the cross of Christ. We don't want all the things that Jesus said, like pick up your cross and follow me. We want the fluff and not the substance. That unfortunately is the state of our world today. And this morning's passage in Isaiah is one of the clearest articulations of the substance and not the fluff of Christmas. It's the crucifixion of Jesus, the suffering and the death of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it highlights the truth of the substitutionary atonement that God suffered in our place. And this passage tells us why Jesus' birth 
is really important for us this morning. Without the death of Jesus and without the work of Jesus, without these truths that we'll look at this morning, there is no good news at Christmas. You get a cool whip salad, all fluff and no substance. And so what I want to argue for this morning is that the birth of Christ is good news only because it's inextricably connected to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That the incarnation that we're celebrating here at Advent is only good news because it leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. We cannot detach or separate or disconnect the birth of Jesus with the death of Jesus, with the gory and off-putting parts of the life of Christ, particularly his death on the cross. And this is where some Christians get it wrong. We want to isolate one aspect or one characteristic of Jesus. I just want that part of Jesus, and I don't want all the other stuff. I just want the nice Jesus, not the one that demanded my allegiance. I just want eight-pound, four-ounce baby Jesus, and not the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this morning, I want us to gain a deeper appreciation of the incarnation as we look at the crucifixion. It seems counterintuitive, but you'll only understand the beauty of the incarnation, that Jesus came into the world, that he was born of a baby, if you know what he's going to ultimately suffer, and that he's going to die for our sins. There is no hope for the world to have light and joy and peace apart from the bad news that Jesus died. And then the good news that he was raised again to new life. And, and as we look at the death of Jesus, it brings into view this reality that we're sinners. That it required such a great sacrifice for us to be forgiven of our sins this morning. So our plan is to look at our passage this morning, all the way from Isaiah 52. So if you don't have your Bible open there already, please do open it. We're going to look at Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way to 53, verse 12. And we're going to look at this suffering servant song in Isaiah. And it's going to be a little bit like a hike down into the Grand Canyon. The, the glory of the Grand Canyon is different than the glory of Mount Everest or the Himalayas. Those are high peaks and the Grand Canyon is a deep cavern. And yet we're going to hike down into the depth of this cavern to see the suffering of Jesus and then come back out on the other side. And this journey takes place in five stages that are going to reveal different aspects of Jesus' suffering and his death. So let, let me just catch us up to speed from where we were last week, Isaiah chapter 9, all the way now to Isaiah 52 and 53. What transpired between that was that Israel and Judah were carried off into exile by Babylon. So the people are now scattered. And we heard it in the scripture reading when we lighted the candle this morning in Isaiah 40, which is on the other side of this exile, comfort, comfort for my people. So Isaiah is now prophesying of a future day that's coming when God will bring his comfort and restoration and grace once again to gather his people. 
And so the question in Isaiah 52 and 53 that is answered for us is how is he going to bring about that comfort? And what we want to see this morning, the question we want to ask is why does God love us? Why can God bring comfort to a people that has been disobedient, that he's punished and have been carried off into exile? What hope is there in the future? What comfort can come? Why does God love his people? And so we see the very first section, which articulates that we are cleansed by Christ's suffering. We are cleansed by Christ's suffering. This passage begins by highlighting the servant's exaltation and his disfigurement. So look with me at Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So so this servant in Isaiah is going to be greatly exalted. And then we see this description of him. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So what's Isaiah doing here in these opening verses of this song? Isaiah prophesies of a servant who would suffer to bring about the cleansing of his people that would ultimately lead to his exaltation. There's this paradoxical language of suffering and cleansing here in this song. First, we see that this servant is going to become so disfigured. Do you see that? People are going to say he's so marred, so beyond human semblance, beyond that of the children of mankind. So people will see the suffering of the servant and they'll say, are you sure this is the one that we've been waiting for? And not only that, they're going to say, is it even human? Because he's been beaten so badly. It's like when you drive by roadkill and you can't determine what animal it is. It's going to be that horrific, the sufferings of this servant. And and this suffering is going to bring about cleansing. Because there's this phrase that he's going to sprinkle the nations. You see that in verse 15? So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, it doesn't tell us what is being sprinkled. But throughout the Old Testament, there's this emphasis that... Blood is sprinkled to bring about cleansing. So it happens in Exodus, where God confirmed his covenant with Israel by having Moses sprinkle blood on the people to establish his covenant with them. That takes place in Exodus 24, verse 8. Or in Leviticus, the priest would sprinkle it on one who's now been healed of leprosy to show the people that he's been cleansed. That takes place in Leviticus 14.7. Or on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle the blood of a bull on the mercy seat to show that blood has been shed so that the people could now enter into God's presence. This sprinkling is cleansing and purification. And this suffering servant is going to become so disfigured to bring about the cleansing of the people. This is 
a a little bit of a summary of the entire song itself. It's showing us here in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus would ever show up on the scene, that there is going to be a servant that comes who is going to suffer so badly to bring about the sprinkling of the nations, the cleansing of the peoples, so that he would be greatly exalted. It's quite amazing that Isaiah captures these truths for us to see so that any of the people that come after Isaiah might read it and say, we know what we're looking for. We, we know what to anticipate. Jesus comes into the world and he touches those who are unclean in order to make them clean. It, it didn't happen this way prior to this. If you touch someone who was unclean, you too were unclean and you went outside the camp with them. But Jesus comes in and everything changes. He touches those who are unclean and makes them clean. He purifies them. He cleanses them. This image of sprinkling is picked up in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 22, where it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Why can we come into the Holy of Holies? Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Water. Jesus cleanses us so that we can come into his presence. Or Hebrews 12, 24. It says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' suffering would lead to our cleansing. This morning, are we stunned by the incarnation? The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, set in motion Christ's sufferings that would be for our cleansing. It's like you're you're taking a walk in the woods and you get sprayed by a skunk. And and no matter how much you want to wash the stink off of you, however many showers you take, however strong of soap, you can't get the stink off. But only something more powerful can come and remove the stink And so it is with Jesus. We were all covered in the stink of our filth and our shame and our guilt. And only the suffering of Jesus come in would cleanse us so that we would be made clean. Only the complete and terrible mutilation of God himself would be sufficient to cleanse us. This tells us two things this morning. Our sins terrible and heinous against the infinitely holy God. And yet there is indeed good news of great joy for all the people because Jesus has come in to address our sin. We are cleansed by Christ's suffering. Now let's look at the second section. We're accepted through Christ's rejection. We're accepted through Christ's rejection. Isaiah 53 one to three. We get two rhetorical questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was despised and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So 
The first thing we see is that this servant is like a young plant that grew up out of dry ground. So Pastor Dan referred to this earlier. Isaiah 11. There's this shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse. This Davidic king in Isaiah 11. This servant is that same person. And he's going to emerge from dry ground. So this is the opposite of nice fertile soil, which means that he's not going to come from prestige or fame or money or royalty, but rather from humble beginnings. And this servant would have an unimpressive appearance and form, we're told. So this is contrasted directly with how Saul and David were described in the Old Testament. You remember what Saul looked like? Well, none of us seen him, but you remember how he's described? He was a foot taller, a head taller than everybody else, and he was so handsome that there was not a man more handsome than he. He was the best-looking guy in the room. Or David was described as ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome. These are guys who looked the part, and the people loved to follow them because everyone loves. It's just human nature. We want to follow someone who, who looks the part. They looked like kings. And yet Jesus is being, what we're being told, he doesn't come from royalty. He was unimpressive. He didn't show up with muscles like the rock, but he was unimpressive that you wouldn't want to look at him. In fact, you might even be able to say he was unattractive, that you might look at him and not pay him a second look because there was not much to look at. Why was Jesus unimpressive physically? Why did he not look like a king? Because he had to be rejected for us. We don't get accepted until Jesus gets rejected. Jesus is described as one who wasn't physically attractive or handsome or magazine cover worthy. He wouldn't star in Hollywood so that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If people somehow saw an attractive exterior, they might follow him for all the wrong reasons. And so God made it crystal clear. And this rejection that Jesus experienced is drawn out in the New Testament again and again for us. Psalm 118.22 is quoted by Mark and Acts and in 1 Peter. And it says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. And it's referring to Jesus. So Jesus had to be rejected by the Pharisees and the scribes and the people. No one looked at him and said, He looks like a king. Let's just crown him. But he had to be rejected so that he would be killed. And that would lead to our salvation. Luke, 22, Luke 9.22 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Or Luke 17.25, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus had to have suffered rejection despised in his earthly life so that it would ultimately lead to his crucifixion, which means that we get acceptance only because Jesus was rejected. This morning, if you're trusting in Jesus, do you ever wonder, does God accept me? Am I clean enough? Am I good enough? And you should hear in no uncertain terms, you have received acceptance into God's family because of Christ's rejection, if you're trusting in him. There's all sorts of places where 
our acceptance very often is conditional. You'll get accepted to college based on your scores or grades. You get acceptance at work because of your resume or your education or your experience. You get acceptance to a neighborhood based on your income. You can afford the house. You get acceptance to a club based on the relationships that you have. Your acceptance into a friend group based on your personality or your looks. But in the family of God and in the church, acceptance isn't based on your money or your intellect or your resume or anything else you can bring to the table. You are a child of the most high God this morning because Jesus was rejected so that you would be received regardless of what you bring to the table. We have been loved by the infinite love of Christ. So we're accepted through Christ's rejection. And third, we're atoned through Jesus' sacrifice. In this third section, in verses four to six, we see that we're atoned through Jesus' sacrifice. Here we've taken the descent and we begin to get to the bottom of the chasm of this Grand Canyon to see the depths of what Jesus suffered. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way, and yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did you notice all the pronouns? Jesus has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, struck down for us, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. What we see in these verses is that Jesus suffered as a substitute for sinners at the cross. He did not deserve to die. He did nothing to deserve death. And yet he suffered death, torture, great suffering for us. In the birth narrative of Jesus, in Matthew one twenty one, the angel appears to Joseph and says, Mary is going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I wonder what went through Joseph's mind. How? How is my baby, our baby, going to bring about the forgiveness of sins? The incarnation looked forward to the crucifixion of Jesus He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes this crystal clear. Many of us know this. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was a sinless sacrifice. He did nothing wrong, but he had to die so that we might have life. This is what theologians call the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. It's a fancy way of saying that Jesus died for us. He was our substitute. What we deserved, he took our place because of our sins, because we were estranged, we were 
enemies of God. We hated God. We were far off. We ought to be punished for our sins. He laid on Jesus the punishment that we deserved so that we would be atoned for. This is a glorious truth that we celebrate here at Bethlehem and here at Christmas. God sent Jesus to atone for our sins by satisfying the requirement that was needed for our sin. He was punished so that we would not need to be punished. We're forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice. This was to show God's justice and righteousness. Isaiah tells us that the problem is that we're all like sheep, each one wandering off in a thousand different directions, and each one turning to his own way. We all do what is right in our own eyes. We all try to be self-justified. We dishonor and disrespect God. But the stunning news of the incarnation is that Jesus has dealt with our sin by giving us a substitute. Forgiveness of sins and atonement is available to all those who will believe and trust in Jesus this morning. Anyone who is guilty can come to Jesus and find forgiveness. Anyone ever wonder, am I really forgiven? Is that all it takes? Just confessing it and putting it before the Lord? That seems too easy, too simple. What if I've done heinous things? Maybe you're walking in this morning. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're hopefully not a serial killer. I have written here serial adulterer is what I meant to say. Serial adulterer engaged in fornication. Maybe a murderer. Maybe someone who hates or resents God. Someone who's self-sufficient or prideful or greedy or a hypocrite or a liar or in bondage to lust or angry or mired in substance abuse or consumed with self-hatred. Whatever our presenting issue of sin might be, and we all have them. How can we find forgiveness, cleansing? The blood of Jesus flows to sinners to take away their shame and guilt. This is the glorious truth of the incarnation. How can light break into the darkness, a world dwelling in deep darkness? How can good news of great joy come for all the people? Jesus came by his grace through the mission of God in order to take the punishment that we rightly deserve to be a substitute for us as the Lamb of God. We are atoned through Jesus' sacrifice. Oh, that we would see the glory of the incarnation this morning. Number four, we're righteous through Jesus' innocence. In this fourth section, we begin to traverse across the bottom of the Grand Canyon to further see the beauty and the magnificence of what God has done. Verses seven to nine, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, in his mouth. What we see in this section is that Jesus was indeed innocent, and he had to be innocent in order to be the blemish-free, the spotless lamb of God. 
Jesus' mission was to lay down his life for us. Old Testament laws, the sacrificial system, all of it was prefiguring what Jesus would accomplish as the Lamb of God. We see that He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't reply when he was reviled so that we would have a perfect sacrifice. Jesus died not for his sins because he was sinless, but he died for our sins. Now, some people criticize this truth as divine child abuse because God punishes the son. But let's hear Jesus' own words in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. This is Jesus speaking, speaking about his life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. This is a stunning, glorious truth that Jesus and the father are together as one along with the spirit in accomplishing the very mission of God. He came not reluctantly, not resisting, not saying really can, can there be a different way? I don't want to do this, but rather Jesus saw the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus said, I delight to bring about the kingdom of God to save sinners. This is my mission. I am the one that lays down my life. No one takes it from me. This is not against my will, but I do as the father has called me to do. Jesus delights to save sinners. Are there any sinners in the room here this morning that need salvation and forgiveness of sins? Jesus calls you to come and he delights to love his people. The apostle Peter helps us to see the significance of the servant's innocence. First Peter 1. 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were we ransomed with? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were cleansed because Jesus' blood was sufficient to cleanse us to save us, to give us acceptance because he was an innocent sacrifice. And we know this because his resurrection and the empty tomb was his vindication. Everything Jesus spoke, everything he said came to pass. And God vindicated his son by raising him up from the dead, bringing him up to heaven, and now seating him at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are righteous through Jesus' innocence. And then number five, we're forgiven through Jesus' victory. We begin to come up from out of the Grand Canyon, and we see that Jesus is victorious. Look with me at verses 10 and 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors here again we see a paradox in this song through jesus death he obtains victory you see all the language that's pointing to victory. He shall see his offspring prolong his days. The Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall be accounted, make many to be accounted righteous. Divide with him the portion of the many. Divide the spoil. Accomplished the work. Jesus' sacrifice was effective. It carried out exactly what he came to do. We get life through Jesus' victory. He does not stay dead, but overcomes death itself. It's Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension that purchase us, purchases for us this good news of great joy that we celebrate here at Advent. The birth of Jesus is inseparable from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus saw his mission to redeem sinners and says, I'll do it. I'm ready. Jesus saw the joy in the cross despite the suffering and pain. So how do we respond to this truth here this Christmas? I want us to see this morning the miracle of the incarnation. And we don't see the miracle of the incarnation until we see the glory and the majesty and the splendor of the crucifixion and resurrection. Only when we see what Jesus accomplished on the cross do we then get the substance of the incarnation and really realize what a big deal it is that God came into the deep darkness of this world and dwelt among us. We can throw around phrases like Emmanuel, God with us, that's great. But until we understand what that means, that he shed his blood, he stretched out his arms, breathed his last, and said, it's finished. And he knew he was going to do that from the very moment he came. Until we see how the birth is connected to the death of Jesus, we will not understand the significance of the incarnation of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you've never trusted him, Jesus offers you life, joy, peace, and hope. If you walked in with sorrows, he has carried your sorrows that you might have joy. If you walked in with grief, he has carried your grief so that you might have life and hope. If you walked in with guilt and shame and anxiety or heartache, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions so that we don't need to find another way. We don't need to cut ourselves or harm ourselves in some act of self-atonement, but we can come and know that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The cost was great, but Jesus paid it for us this morning. 
We don't live in fear, but we live by faith. One of the worst things about Christmas is that we teach children that it's mainly about whether you're naughty or nice. There's a little elf on a shelf, and he's looking. And if you've been good, you'll get presents. And if you've been bad, you'll get coal. But the gospel tells us we've all been bad. We all deserve much worse than coal. We don't deserve life itself. What we do deserve is destruction and condemnation. The wrath of God poured out on us, unfiltered, undistilled in its concentrated form. That's what we deserve. And yet only by the grace of God, only because of the sacrifice of Jesus, only because his blood was shed for us by his chastisement, we have peace that we get good gifts this morning. We get glorious, eternal life, joy, peace, and life through Jesus. Do we stand in awe this morning of the incarnation? Do we marvel at the beauty and the majesty of what Jesus has done. There are thousands and millions of people who say, I don't want the substance, just give me the fluff. I just want the fluff. That's sufficient for me. I just need a shot in the arm to get me through winter and then the summer will come again and I'll be happy and and I just want the, the family time and the decorations and the lights and the presents. I don't want all the religious stuff. May that not be us this morning. May we be those who say, give me the substance. What I want to celebrate this Christmas is not just that Jesus came as a baby that we get to marvel at the cute baby, that we get to look at the animals at the nativity scene, but we get to glory in the cross of Christ and say, look what Jesus has done for us so that whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever pain, whatever suffering I bring to the table this Christmas, the Lord has taken it upon himself and I can have life and joy and peace. Not shallow joy, not shallow peace, but deep abiding peace because of what Jesus has done. My greatest issue is my sin, and Jesus has solved it by his blood. If we consider our sin, our wretchedness, our failure to honor God, our hard-heartedness, our disobedience, our arrogance and our pride, our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance, our inability to please God— If we see that rightly, we know that we're hopeless. But oh, praise be to God. He has sent his son so that we might have life everlasting. The lamb of God, our substitute, so that we don't die. We're not punished, but we get life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Help us to marvel at the good news that has come. Help us to see with fresh eyes. Help us to take hold of the substance of the incarnation. Help us to see your glory afresh. And for those who've never seen it this morning, oh, we pray that they would see it this morning in a saving way. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.